Poltergeist. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say that word? Is it the trilogy of movies, the making of which was said to be cursed? Is it a certain prank-loving entity from the Harry Potter franchise? Or have you personally experienced what it's like to be the target of an emotional spirit, thrashing and throwing things about in a wild frenzy? For some, the idea of ghosts, spirits, and poltergeists is nothing more than spiritualist mumbo-jumbo, fit only for movies or TV, and not taken seriously. For others, communication with the dead absolutely occurs. Indeed, one survey estimates that 40% of Americans believe that ghosts do in fact exist, and close to 30% of Americans have actually experienced some form of apparition or contact with the paranormal. Religions and folklore endure in an attempt to explain the unexplainable. From the Kappa of Japan, supposedly responsible for numerous accidental drownings, to the changelings of Ireland, who steal away children and replace them with their own, to even the biblical story of the rainbow as a symbol of God's promise never to flood the earth again. And when it comes to the paranormal, there's no end to the stories that could be told. Today, I'd like to focus on one particular story from the early 1800s. But first, we need to clarify the terms ghost and spirit, because there is in fact a difference. Ghost refers to those disembodied beings who are permanently linked to the place of their death. Typically, ghosts are created when a person comes to a particularly violent or tragic end. Whereas spirits are the souls of someone that outlived their body. Spirits, unlike ghosts, are not tied to any one place, and they therefore appear anywhere they choose. And then there is the poltergeist. These destructive entities are ghosts broiling with potent, often deadly, anger. Poltergeists are the beings that fling objects around the room, set fires, or slam doors. No wonder the word poltergeist means noisy ghost in German. Not all poltergeists seek to destroy the people around them. There are those that live quite contentedly with a poltergeist, more mischievous and temperamental. Picture a house guest that you neither agreed to nor knew about before it was too late, who has a tendency to knock things off of shelves, bang on walls, and clang pipes only to disappear for long periods of time before returning. That's what farmer John Bell and his family found themselves in the midst of between 1817 to 1821. And the American state of Tennessee has never been the same since. All secrets are deep. All secrets become dark. That's in the nature of secrets. Cory Doctorow I'm Aiden Main. Welcome to Haunting Historia. John Bell started life in Edgecombe County, North Carolina, where he gained a fair bit of prominence as a farmer. He was regarded amongst the area's most successful planters, the late 1700s. 
During the winter of 1804 to 1805, he and his wife Lucy packed up their belongings and set out northwest. They traveled over a stretch of mountains that cover North Carolina and Tennessee to a place known at the time as the Barren Plains. Lovely name for a place to settle your small family, isn't it? But the Bells apparently didn't mind, building themselves a little farm on a plot of land in the northwest section of what is now Robertson County, Tennessee. They rebuilt their lives and produced a gaggle of offspring, Betsy, the eldest, Robert, John Jr., Drury, Benjamin, and Jesse. Just as he did in Edgecombe County, Bell amassed a reputation as an excellent farmer. His success and prominence could have been what attracted the trouble. Or perhaps his family built their home in the wrong place. Indeed, some sources of the story indicate that the farm is built on an old Native American burial ground. Whatever the reason, John Bell Sr. first noticed strange goings-on in 1817 when he saw a large, strange creature resembling a dog. He grabbed for his gun, but before he could shoot the thing, it disappeared without a trace. In another instance of odd happenings, John's son Drew stumbled upon a bird he describes as an extraordinary size. Drew approached the bird as it sat on a fence, but it flew off before he could get close, just as the dog had disappeared. Other sightings include a girl in a green dress swinging from the limb of a tree, and a second large black dog that stalked the family. During this period, the Bells seemed unaware that all of the strange sightings were of the same entity able to shift itself to suit whatever game it wanted to play. Eventually, the paranormal problems reached the household of the Bell family. They began to hear the telltale sounds of knocking at doors and walls, chains rattling, and gnawing on numerous unknown things. The poltergeist wanted attention. She did everything from pulling sheets off the beds all the way up to pinching and slapping. The witch seemed to pay significant attention to Betsy Bell, going so far as to stick her with pins. Around this same time, John Sr. is said to have started experiencing paralysis in his mouth from time to time. Unsure what else to do, the Bells sought the advice of a Mr. James Johnston, who graciously agreed to spend the night in their home. Johnston tried to sleep that night but he awoke to the same sounds and events that the Bells had described. The next morning, he provided his assessment of the situation. He reportedly told them, it is a spirit, just like in the Bible. The story spread like wildfire. The Bell Farm is being haunted. People came from miles and miles to spend a night on the Bell Farm and experience the witch that supposedly haunted the place. The curious aspect of poltergeists is that they are powered by emotion. They feed off of the people around them, particularly their fear. 
with so many coming from all over, the poltergeist harassing the Bell family became so powerful that she began to speak. They asked her who she was, why she appeared to be so very angry. Accounts vary regarding her responses, but most seem to agree that she called herself Kate, and she was there for two reasons. The first turned out to be John Sr.'s death, though she never did explain why. The other reason was to end a blossoming relationship between the eldest child, Betsy, and a neighbor boy named Joshua Gardner. No one could satisfactorily account for why the witch seemed to want John dead. There was, in fact, a neighbor woman called Kate Batts, who died claiming that John Bell had cheated her in a land deal. But the entity apparently never confirmed this. Whoever she was, and whatever her motivation for tormenting the Bell family, she seemed to revel in the attention she got from the incidents. Several times she was tested to prove that she really was a supernatural witch. John Johnston, son of the neighbor James, attempted to ask the entity something that only someone within his family would know. He asked her what his Dutch step-grandmother in North Carolina would say if she thought one of her slaves had done something wrong. Kate responded in a perfect mimic of the woman, saying, Hut tut, what has happened now? The witch appeared to be able to be in multiple places at once as well. An Englishman supposedly stopped and asked her about his family overseas. She is said to have responded with his parents' voices, prompting the man to return to England to check on them. According to this account, his parents had heard his voice as well, having been visited by the witch at the same time he was at the Bell farmhouse. In the winter of 1820, Kate the Bell Witch finally succeeded in the first of her supposed goals. John Bell Sr. became stricken around mid-December, and he was unable to get out of bed. John Jr. found his father unable to wake on the 19th and sent for Dr. Hobson. Meanwhile, the witch exclaimed that she had poisoned John Sr. in a delightful voice. The poison in question was found some say in the cupboard, others hidden away in the flue of the chimney. Regardless of where it came from, they tested the poison. They put one drop of the substance on a piece of straw and fed it to a cat, which died rather quickly. The next day, on December 20th, 1820, John Bell Sr. died. Today, Researchers propose that he may have suffered from some kind of neurological disorder that went undiagnosed due to the lack of knowledge on that kind of condition at the time. According to the legend, the witch sang loud and bawdy drinking songs during his funeral. She stuck around for just one more year, long enough to see Betsy Bell end her engagement to Joshua Gardner in 1821. Afterwards, she proclaimed that she was leaving 
and would return in seven years. And it seems she was a ghost of her word, for no sightings or incidents of the witch were reported until 1828. She reappeared for a rather short time. Only a few weeks passed before she once again announced her departure. During that time, she visited John Bell Jr. and discussed everything from the past and present to the future. Then she told everyone that she would be back in 107 years. This time, she either lied or her return was not as widely noticed. Some who live in the area claim that she never truly left. Strange things crop up all the time in the town of Adams and the cave on the Bell property, now known as the Bell Witch Cave. For all the cruel things the Bell Witch did during the few years that she harassed the family, Kate also had a bit of a soft side. I'd like to share that side with you, after a quick break. This episode of Haunting Historia was written and produced by me, Aidan May, with music by John Bjork. The Bell Witch is one of those stories that transcends time. Throughout the years since, whether the whole thing was just a hoax or really did happen, the entire state of Tennessee continues to bring it up. Oftentimes, if something strange happens, the witch's name gets tossed around as a potential reason. The property once owned by the Bells, including the cave Kate supposedly lived in, was added to the National Historical Registry in April 2008. It's amazing the kind of things that can stick with us all these years after the event. That's why I started this podcast. The Bell Witch may be widely known in Tennessee, even taught in some schools, but I didn't know about her until I started researching this episode. If you have a story from history that you want told, let me know about it through my email, stories at hauntinghistoria.com, or through the contact form on my website, hauntinghistoria.com. Kate the Bellwitch, for whatever reason, hated John Bell Sr. But she had a bit of a soft spot for his wife. According to the accounts I found, she actually referred to her as the most perfect woman to walk the earth. She is said to have offered Lucy fresh fruit and go so far as to sing sweetly for her. Her kindness also extended to John Jr. I found no evidence other than that she supposedly showed him respect, but she must have saved John Jr. from the worst of her rages. It would make sense, given that she appeared to him eight years after killing his father just to talk. But her kindness goes farther than that. Over the intervening years, several people have visited the Bell Witch Cave, 
and experienced a form of kindness from Kate. One man was washing off the work of the day when he told his son to go and grab the soap he had forgotten. Before the boy could run off, however, the soap slid down into the cave. There's no record of whether or not the washing continued after that or not. But the most interesting story, in my opinion, is that of the boy that once got himself lost inside the cave. A voice no one could identify cried, I'll get him out. The boy then described hands pulling on him, eventually leading him to the exit. While he was dragged to safety, a disembodied voice provided the boy with a much-needed lecture on the dangers of spelunking. Apparently, Kate the Bellwitch has a bit of a maternal side. If you enjoyed this episode of Haunting Historia, then I invite you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. History is a tapestry of the strange and sensational In these days of pandemics and social issues, I try to reach back into the past and bring with me stories that can help bring people together through entertainment and education. As Theodore Roosevelt once said, do what you can with what you have, where you are.